How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Mark Carrig, also from The Athletic. You are listening to Beyond the Scrum. And Mark, it's the two words that we've all been waiting to say all year. What are they, pal? Big week. <laughs> you bet. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. How big? Very. Very. Play ball. Yeah, man. Oh, Play ball. Yeah, right. you're an idiot. You're so dumb. Damn. <laughs> You're so Unbelievable. dumb. Unbelievable. Yeah, play ball. And, and and you know what? It's great because uh, it's totally safe and totally responsible, and it's going to go great. Don't you think, pal? Oh, yeah. Smooth sailing, baby. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Let's book your tickets get into the World this. Series. Did you yeah, book your travel get... yet? You better get on that. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you're never going to see me again, buddy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Look, so we have a fun episode. Actually, no, we don't have a fun episode, but we have an interesting episode. Uh, we spoke, we talked to Eugene Friedman, a very experienced labor attorney, to give us kind of a, a rundown, a bit of some of the issues that remain at play moving forward with Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association and the potential uh, viability of a grievance uh, that related to negotiating in bad faith. We'll have that interview later. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit just about the state of play in Major League Baseball as baseball and the union have agreed in some form or fashion to terms and players are supposed to report to camp on July 1st. And uh, meanwhile, cases of the coronavirus are increasing at uh, alarming rates in Texas and Arizona, as well as in Florida, as well as in California, as well as in Georgia, as well as in some other places. And there is a lot of concern from folks in the industry who I have talked to about the viability of this season. Mark, what, uh, what are you hearing? What's your kind of stance as we get ready to conduct this great experiment, I guess? Boy, I, uh, you know, you named a bunch of markets that house Major League Baseball teams, Andy. Uh, yeah. That, that might be problematic. Um, yeah, like did a story with Matt Gelb earlier this week looking at some of these issues. And I think I've been skeptical from the jump about there being baseball this season. And I'm skeptical now because of some of the things you just laid out there. Uh, this virus hasn't gone away despite some folks going on television and telling you that it's going away. It hasn't. Um, you know, there's more cases. You, you've talked about a lot of places that are very important to baseball that are about you know, are kind of hitting the worst of it now. So um, it's tough. And I, and I think what you're hearing from folks in the industry is a lot of what I'm hearing uh, also from people that work in baseball. There's a lot of uh, skepticism. I think they see a lot of the hurdles that must be cleared to get this going, and those hurdles look overwhelming. So it's crazy, but the uh, fist fight between the union and the league is probably the easiest part of this, okay? <laughs> I mean, they think about it, right? Like It's like two people fighting in the parking lot, uh, and now they got to go drive off and climb a mountain strapped together. Yep. Okay. Like that's, I mean, <laughs> yeah. brutal. It's brutal. So, and then yeah. when you actually sit there and look at, at you know, the, the issues at play, and in this case, you're talking about um, basically relying on players to behave themselves away from the mm -hmm. park. Uh, and this is not a group that is necessarily renowned for that ability to show that discipline once the game's over, okay? Right. Uh, I mean, that's the biggest one. But then you've got a hundred 
other issues after that. So it, it feels overwhelming, Andy, and I, I look at it with a lot of skepticism, and I think a lot of the people I've talked to in baseball share that view too. Yeah, so I want to uh, I want to kind of be clear too about the terms that we're um, – and, and why maybe we're, or at least I, you know, I'll speak for myself, why I have want to um, vocalize this, I guess. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've joked a lot during this time that I feel like reading about baseball right now kind of makes me feel like my head is exploding. Um, you know, there were weeks when we talked about playing games at a time when no one was allowed to go outside to get a haircut, but in theory, baseball was supposed to be starting in a week from then. Um, so like you, I've been pretty skeptical about the feasibility of uh, playing baseball amid the pandemic. And, and like you, I've been pretty pessimistic about the trend lines of the coronavirus in general. So, um, you know, there's a good chance that if you're, you know, I mean, the royal you, not you specifically, Mark, but if you, you know, read the stories and columns I've, I've written in the past few months or listen to this podcast, you know, what I'm saying isn't really fresh, but I think this is an important, um, I think this is really important to me, at least. Um, I found the, the dissonance between the coverage of this past weekend when all the camps were shut down because of a rash of, inf- rash of infections. And, uh, and I've heard there was a good deal of infections that, that didn't get reported, like the ones that Phillies camp did. Um, the dissonance between that moment when a lot of folks in the media were reminded how difficult it will be to play baseball this year. And the moment on Monday when it became clear that the commissioner and the union had finally reached some, you know, detente borne out more from exhaustion than actual, you know, collaboration and cohesion, um, you know, to see the discussion so quickly whiplash from, hey, you know what, this COVID thing might be a problem to like play ball, you know, was one of the more disconcerting things I've experienced in a while as a consumer of sports media, you know, and, and I want to point out why I harbor such reservations about baseball being played in 2020. It's, it's not just the risks taken on by the players, the coaches, the executives, the trainers, and the staffers who will be traveling the country. It's not just the risks the risks foisted on the families of the players and the coaches and the executives and the staffers and the trainers. It's the risk foisted upon all the different people who interact with those in the baseball environment. It's the risk of spreading the virus. And I know that there's this idea that we can't live in a bubble forever and that we have to sort of be, you know, we have to, uh, you know, move forward in some way. We can't just hide in place forever. Okay, but you have to be as responsible as possible. And compliance is a huge deal, as you mentioned. And so I'm worried about outbreaks in the clubhouse. I'm worried about teams having to shut down. But I'm also worried about the ripple effects caused by fanning the virus out you know, through the country. And you know where the weight of this virus lands? It lands disproportionately on black and brown people, the sort of people who are already born under this nation's boot and already have to deal with so much systematic inequality. You know, based on everything I've read and based on all the trend lines, COVID furthers the cycle of inequality in this country. And if baseball contributes to that cycle by furthering the by further spreading the virus, I think it's real hard to feel excitement about this season. So you know, maybe I'm wrong. I hope to God I'm wrong. I don't want to be right about this. Are you kidding me? 
you know, I'm as sick as this, of this hellscape as anyone else, you know, fortunate enough to be able to say I'm sick of this hellscape when, you know, my only material issue is my pay got cut a little bit and I have nothing to write about. I mean, I'm not a victim here, but I'm sick of this too, you know, just like everyone else. And so maybe baseball can execute this season in a way that's safe and responsible. I really hope they do. But I've heard a lot of reservations from a lot of different people around the sport. And I think it's important to understand where those reservations come from. It's not just keeping the people in baseball safe. It's what this experiment could do throughout the country. And maybe I'm being overdramatic. And you know what? If I am, fine. I'm, I'm happy to be overdramatic in that way on this issue. And that's where I'm at with it. You know, I, it, like if I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong. If I'm being overdramatic, I hope I'm being overdramatic. But it's hard to shake. It's, it's hard to shake my position. Anyway. Man, you're being so overdramatic. No, I'm just like, <laughs> look, man, I, you know what bothers me, dude, really? What really yeah. bothers me is like overnight, this country has turned into a bunch of freaking children, you know? <laughs> like, if you want freaking baseball, put a goddamn mask on. Yeah. Okay, if you, you know what I'm saying? You want your entertainment, put a mask on. Yeah, bleep it. But do it. Just <laughs> put the damn mask on. Like, yeah. so that's what I mean. Like, I look at this, I look at the spread. And you got a bunch of people screaming and yelling about everything except for putting your damn mask on. It is one of the mm -hmm. few things about this horrible disease that scientists, I think, are pretty much in unison on. That putting the mask on helps. Yeah. Okay? Helps. And, and then it's become an issue, which just blows my mind. Yeah. So it is like we have just overnight as a people become children and now we complain. Well, they get to have their toys. What about us? Well, they took care of their business in New Zealand, in Europe, yeah. in yeah. Taiwan. Okay. We didn't. And that stinks. <clears throat> and so what sucks too is that I, like you, I'm sick of this as well. And yeah. what really bothers me is when I write about this or I say something about it and it's some asshole on the internet saying some shit like, well, you just don't like baseball. You would yeah, just rather yeah, yeah. disappear altogether, yeah. you know, all this. It's like, no, no. As a matter <laughs> yeah. of fact, I love baseball. And by the way, asshole, I probably want it back faster than you do because I have skin in the game. I make yeah. my living covering baseball. Yeah, I put I, food on the table and a roof over my head covering baseball and you know uh, what sometimes covering baseball means having to write some shit you don't want to write like this COVID-19 is still here I don't want to write that yeah. but it's still here I don't want to write that people are scared about it but that's what's going on and that is my job so I'm going to keep writing about it because but because people are being children they equate that with well that's that must be how I feel. I don't want baseball. And it's ridiculous. It is just so stupid. It's so stupid. And I don't understand how quickly we got here. It is like people woke up one day and decided to be children. And it's so dumb. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. I don't want to be writing this either. Okay? But the fact of the matter is yeah. there is still this horrible disease raging in certain parts of the country and those parts of the country are kind of important for baseball and then you also talk about some of the moral things that you bring up which again not fun to talk about okay i get it but i don't think we're actually doing our jobs as journalists if we don't talk about it 
even if the readers don't necessarily want to read it. All right? Like that, I don't know. And, and that's, again, children look at something like, oh, I think that I'm really skeptical about baseball, and they think, well, that guy hates baseball. That's what children think. We've got too many children on the internet right now. We've got too many children in this country right now. Wake up. Wake I like up. how, you know, I do this, I do some big, dumb West Wing speech, and then you just come in with something far crazier. You're, it's really, you're I've a good partner. I've been locked up for too long. <laughs> what do you want from me? Go like, golf I got with Lennon or something. I mean, that three months locked up. I got yeah. the ass too. I mean, jeez. Yeah. You know, like, I do I do enjoy when uh, when folks are like, you don't want baseball to come back. I'm like, bro, oh, the I'm, I'm going to uh, get fired. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just the dumb. Like, that's the, actually, yeah. you know, it takes a lot to get under my skin like i mean i've been yeah. called so many things through the years like sure. I, should, I should i've saved the email some of them like they're all just awful things awful things about yeah. my wife and my family and like you know me the color of my skin all that like i mean and you know what look that's part of this right like you put your name on top of a story you're gonna get some of that that's fine that is fine but the, it's strange though the one thing that really gets me is that well you just must hate baseball you're one of those people Okay, and I just want to tell them, F you, all right? Like, you don't know shit about me, number one. Number two, like, really, like, step back. I want people to shut down baseball, me, right? With as much as I've got tied up in this. And, like, you know, we, we've talked about just between us, like, coverage of, of all of this going on. And you know what, man? Part of it is wrapped up in the fact that, you know what? Folks have skin in the game. Yeah. Okay. So I, and I think a lot of people online are pretty savvy or kind of noticing some of the conflicts that pop up because of that. But that's precisely why it happens. These are human beings and you know, we need the sport too. Okay. Like, I mean, hmm. I, so I don't know this idea that I somehow hate it and I'm part of some conspiracy to take your baseball away from you. It's like, you know what, man, kiss my ass, wake up, <laughs> like stop being a child. Now again, we're not talking to any listeners of Beyond the Scrum because all you guys well, no. are, are great. That's all, right. You're all you're all great. My favorite <laughs> subscribers. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I just don't know. Like I don't know how to track the, uh, you know, kind of uh, going getting back from uh, you know your meltdown and back to the uh, coronavirus. Um, <laughs> oh, that's I don't, rich. Yeah, uh, I don't know how to track. Like again, it, there's a just the dissonance, right? Like today, the NFL canceled the Hall of Fame game, right? That game is played in August. Um, Disney World is trying to delay the opening from July seventeenth, uh, or maybe it's Disneyland. I forget. Um, but you know, one of the parks is trying to delay its opening and. Baseball players are supposed to arrive at camp in six days. I mean, it just—I don't know. It—it's—it uh, it feels—it feels unsafe. I—I I don't have another way to put it, frankly. Yeah, it just and does. you know, they, know. and they—they they know it too. They know that mm-hmm. there's risk involved here. I think where the blinders are up is that, and, and you hit this in in your diatribe earlier, Andy. It's not just necessarily about the players, coaches, trainers, people in uniform or whatever. 
It is the fact that these people are also getting on planes. They are mm-hmm. going to be crossing paths with service people, mm-hmm. okay, like, and on and on and on. And that just means more chance of moving this, this moving the virus mm-hmm. around. I mean, that's ultimately what strikes me as as gross about it. And so, getting back to like the, the the start of this, like so, baseball comes back, and I want to be happy because mm-hmm. I need it. All right. Not. I mean, and and besides that, even if I weren't making my my living covering baseball, like I love the sport. You know, like I, like this is again super corny. I'm dropping my kid off the other day, um, you know, and uh, uh, I hear uh, they put on like a, a station, and they had an old ball game on, and it was comforting. You know, it was, and I, I again, I, I just I forget. Because it's been so long, I haven't been watching these old games or whatever. So to hear it was just like it stopped me for a second. Like, oh man, I really, really miss that. So like on that level, like this stinks, all right. And like I, I really, I would like baseball back. Um, but yeah, like it's just it's hard to feel. As someone who loves it that much, it was hard to feel good about it because it is also against these realities that are still out there. Okay, yeah, and it sucks. But, uh, hmm. you know, again, like this is the difference between children and adults, I think. <laughs> children want to look at just their toys. They want the shine of their toys, and that's great. And I hate to use those, like, to make it that black and white, all right, because it's clearly there's more nuance to it than children and adults. But, there like, is, I, I mean, but, but you know what? I'm, I'm sick of it. I don't have the patience to even sort through the nuance right now just because every time I hear someone open their mouth and dismiss how serious this thing is, I just want to tell them to shut up and grow up because it's just, I can't, I can't take it anymore. It's just so ridiculous to me. And, and the fact that like, saying that is somehow some political stance is also just beyond stupid, beyond stupid. I, I mean, yeah. how, how do we get here? Like, I, it's just crazy to me. Yeah. Um, I, you know, what, what, what interests me is there is a, there's kind of that middle ground of the folks who acknowledge the risk of, um, you know, COVID and are totally get what's going on, but suggest that you just can't shut life down. You got to kind of figure out a way to like figure out a new normal, I guess that's sort of like pragmatic approach. And like, um, you know, I'm in general, I'm pretty sympathetic to like pragmatism. And I think that's a, that's a reasonable stance. What I wonder about is if what baseball is doing is the most pragmatic approach. And, you know, you are seeing that some of the issues that the NBA and the NHL might have with doing a bubble, uh, setup. And a bubble was something that Major League Baseball initially proposed, the Arizona plan, and it kind of got scuttled because, you know, the players made pretty clear they weren't going to go for it. And it seemed like uh, some owners had some issues with, you know, some, you know, like TVs and TV deals and, you know, signage at the ballparks. And so that got scuttled. And I think when the Arizona plan came out, you know, my reaction was pretty similar to a lot of people's reaction because, wow, that's pretty crazy. I don't think they can pull that off. The problem is that Major League Baseball took that and came up with a plan that's more difficult to pull off, that is not easier and does not keep players safer. It's more convenient in terms of, you know, restrictions on day-to-day existence, um, but it's not safer if you talk to epidemiologists about it. So um, that aspect is, you know, that's part of where my concern arises from is that they're being asked to do something very very difficult and 
I just worry about the cavalier nature that oh, you know, that players may be uh, harboring when they go into this environment. I hope I'm on, wrong. On a day-to-day basis, these guys are going to have to fill out questionnaires, take their own temperature, log mm-hmm. that temperature into an app. All right, show up at the park, go through another screening. Uh, I mean, it's all this stuff. Like they're staggering when they work out. Um, you can only shower during a certain in a certain situation. You can't yeah. spit, like on and on. And and then afterward, okay. Like there's all these things in the operations manual that get into, uh, you know, how, when you can leave the hotel and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, by the way, MLB's not gonna really look after that it's up to the clubs and the players good luck <laughs> yeah like, i mean really like oh, i mean man. so so yeah I, the bubble plan is so restrictive and so difficult and there's a psychological element to that too mm-hmm. it's, it's just people cooped up and whatever there's a great cost to that uh i'm not saying that that's awesome either but this right now this idea that you're going to you know this whole thing is predicated on player behavior in a country in which wearing a mask is a political issue. <laughs> yeah. And you know yeah. what? Like, those clubhouses are a reflection of us, right? They're still, you know, like, they're, I mean, more or less, like, despite scale of income or whatever, there's still people, a lot of them who grew up here, right? Well, Mark, so, they're a reflection of me. They're a reflection of you. That's right. That's right. Because Lincecum no longer pitches, therefore, I think he's the last <laughs> Filipino. But anyway, like... <laughs> You know, but that's the thing. You, you, you have, uh, we have a country right now in which wearing a mask is like a yeah. giant issue. And you're yeah. now, and, and, and you're supposed to expect these people to just follow along the guidelines in some book that they may or may not read. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I mm-hmm. mean, that, I, I just don't see that happening. And, uh, you know, as you, like we talked about that story about, that I wrote with Matt, I mean, about the Phillies camp, and then you'd mentioned hearing that there might have been other cases like that that weren't reported. I mean, look, th- this is, that to me was, was just like a, a preview of how this could all come, come apart. And, you know, and then all, and this is the other thing that makes me crazy is that you say something like that, and now you've got 100 epidemiologists in the comments section. <laughs> right next to the hundred media experts in the comments section, yeah. all of them yeah. with their degrees in journalism and frickin' medicine from the University of Facebook. Yeah, like, I, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, unless you're Richard Preston, really, don't give me advice on this. Um, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, as we said, very uplifting episode of Beyond the Scrum yet again. Uh, <laughs> I just want a scrum to be beyond at this point. Like, well, yeah, I can't yeah. believe it. I miss the scrum. I miss that stupid scrum. Like, we might not have one for another, well, ever, really. My gosh. Uh, yeah, it is going to be funny when they just they use this to completely kick us out of the clubhouse forever. That's going to be good. I'm looking uh, forward to that. Boy, another special episode coming. <laughs> Very Can we just resolve episode. the next next one? Is just find something positive and fun and uplifting to talk about. I don't know, just try to be bummed. Yeah, Andy. sure, Mark. You know, we, let's do let's do an episode about how how uh, you know the the season's going to be uh, weird and wacky because it's 160 games or excuse me, uh, 60 games, whatever, whatever this okay. season. That, yeah, let's yeah. do that. Yeah, no, we're not doing that. I could <laughs> oh. I I don't think I could do it. 
like I sometimes I've you know been doing like radio interviews and and they're like they they ask like you know is this season going to be tainted and I'm like if they play a season and get through it safely and responsibly and there's not outbreaks and there's not a huge cascading effect that you know makes the the pandemic worse and they get to a world series and declare a champion this will be the greatest season in baseball history like what are you talking they're they should be champions of all time they should declare this team the champion of next year too if you if, like, if you could do all that, congratulations! Like you're the champs of the decade. You're the champs of the century. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, let's get to our interview with Eugene, uh, and we will be back with you later. Well, we're joined now by our guest, Eugene Friedman, who is an experienced union union labor lawyer. And if you've been paying attention to this uh, public cat fight. Uh, Eugene has been weighing in on Twitter with some very interesting um, bits of analysis throughout the process. Eugene, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Good. My pleasure to join you guys. Well, I, you know, I think, folks, if you're listening to this, you, you kind of have the basics of how all of this went down. And I think what I'm more interested in is what all of this means moving forward, because the sides have a CBA to hammer out. Um, at some point. And then there's also uh, been talk of a grievance from the players. So I guess we could start there, Eugene. What Could you explain to folks what this grievance entails, what the end game would be with that? How does that process work? Sure. Um, and one of the things I think just to lay some groundwork is a grievance is a mechanism that's used in collective bargaining to avoid court litigation or worse yet, you know, something like economic warfare between the parties, such as a strike or a lockout. A grievance is a preferred method under the National Labor Relations Act, and the U.S. Supreme Court has endorsed the grievance process, the arbitration process, uh, which is what grievances can culminate in, uh, as a remedy, an alternative dispute resolution process to avoid, as I said, economic warfare or court litigation. So, in this case, there is uh, a, there are a number of things in the March agreement that the parties have some at least initial dispute over. And one of them was whether Major League Baseball has made its best efforts to play as many games as possible. And, you know, initially I thought, uh, based on the reports, that the commissioner was going to impose a 48-game schedule. That's what a lot of uh, reporters were suggesting. And I think in light of the fact that Major League Baseball proposed a 60-game schedule and accepted the ramifications of its March agreement, which provided for full pro rata pay for employees, there really wasn't an option for them to backtrack into 48 games also with pro rata pay. That would have exposed them to liability for at least those 12 games. And I think the commissioner handled that pretty deftly by imposing what he proposed as his last offer, which was a 60-game uh, proposal. And the reason that that, I think, was smart is it prevented the risk of liability by saying, oh, well, it is economically feasible to play 60 if you agree, but if you don't agree, we're going to impose fewer games than that. That difference 
uh, could have been available as a remedy to failure to make best efforts. Now, there is still the possibility that there is a grievance about uh, failure to make best efforts for longer than 60 games. The problem with that grievance is at this point in time, it's really impossible to make that work. Uh, I don't see it as feasible for uh, Major League Baseball to play more than 60 games at this time. Now, if the Players Association can prove that the commissioner's office was engaging in bad faith bargaining throughout this process, that might be able to create more legs for a, a potential award from an arbitrator in the grievance, uh, because if they can prove bad faith, uh, then the commissioner could have used best efforts to play more games uh, had he agreed earlier. I, I Sorry, I just want to, uh, is there like a specific legal definition of bad faith? Because that's like a term that obviously gets thrown around a lot just in general and, you know, when you're having sort of arguments with folks. So like, it, what is the standard there, if there is one? So the standard is laid out in mostly in case law uh, by the National Labor Relations Board. And those cases have been tested and adopted in the federal circuit courts and sometimes by the Supreme Court over the decades. Um, so there's not necessarily one standard because it is based on a totality of the circumstances. However, there are certain things that are indicia of bad faith bargaining. One of them in particular is negotiating to impasse over a permissive subject. And that kind of goes into what is uh, the required subjects that the parties must bargain to conclusion and then what subjects don't they have to bargain. In this particular case, the uh, March agreement dealt with a lot of the mandatory subjects of bargaining under the National Labor Relations Act. One of those mandatory subjects is wages. And the parties agreed in March to pro rata pay. Uh, that was very explicitly contained in the agreement. Uh, there was nothing in the agreement itself. The plain language of the agreement just says, uh, if and when we play games, this will be what people are paid. It didn't create a reopener. It didn't provide an option for the parties to go back and renegotiate that. So because that issue was foreclosed by the March agreement, there was no longer a duty to bargain over that subject. And it made it then permissive for the parties to voluntarily uh, reopen that. Management did initially offer several times actually to reopen the pro rata pay. The Players Association was very clear that it would not reopen pay. And I think had management not come back with that offer a, a week ago Monday saying, we agree that the March agreements pro rata pay uh, is in effect and our, our last offer on this subject is 60 games at pro rata pay, I think the Players Association would have had a strong argument on bad faith because management would have been essentially assisting to impasse, insisting to impasse on a permissive subject, uh, a non-mandatory subject that was only bar negotiable at the party's election. And so by doing that, by uh, another, I think, uh, very tactical move by the commissioner's office to come back 
and finally put on the table something that complied with the March agreement, I think that was a very uh, wise move tactically in a way to undermine the potential grievance. Gotcha. So, so forgive me. Cause I just, cause I'm, I'm an idiot. Um, th- the circumstances you just laid out, right? So if they had sort of uh, continued to fight about the pro rate of pay, even though it already been determined, that would be, I guess, you know, bargaining in bad faith. But when the players propose a 114 game season in a situation that they know cannot be enacted because of health concerns and also because the owners have made clear they don't want that that is not that doesn't meet the same criteria that's just like negotiating right i mean you can make outlandish proposals and it's not considered bad faith bargaining um Mm-hmm. In this case, it really comes down to whether the parties maintained a position that uh, was outside the duty to bargain. Now, you could argue that the players proposing specific numbers of games was outside that duty because they had bargained away uh, the the ability to negotiate the schedule. Uh, schedule falls under a mandatory subject uh called hours uh, under the National Labor Relations Act. Those mandatory subjects are wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. So with regard to hours, the players had negotiated that away. It was discretionary to the commissioner. Uh, You can waive your right over mandatory subjects, but it has to be explicit. Uh, And in this case, they explicitly waived that right and granted it to the commissioner. So you could say that all of the proposals over specific numbers of games um, bordered on that bad faith because it was not something the commissioner uh, was required to bargain over. Uh, That said, the commissioner did have provisions in that, that restricted his unilateral authority. He had to meet certain criteria in that March agreement and Part of that was a back and forth process over uh, feedback and discussion with the union over what it thought was the best efforts uh, to to make a schedule. Uh, so I think at least there the union could say that it was participating in that feedback process and therefore it wasn't bad faith bargaining. Eugene, how difficult is it ultimately to prove that people were bargaining in bad faith. And I, th- I guess, more to the point, how likely is it ultimately that the players do go ahead with a grievance? Do you envision that actually happening? Well, I think part of it would have to do with their evidence that they have. I think the arbitrator would use the same standard as the National Labor Relations Board um, in terms of a totality of the circumstances. The burden of proof here would be on the union because it would be the party alleging breach of the March agreement and breach of the duty to bargain in good faith. I think that it is an uphill battle. Uh, We obviously don't have all of the evidence that they have over the bargaining process. Obviously, uh, there were lots of leaks throughout the process. Most of them came from management. That could be construed as evidence of bad faith, uh, especially in light of the fact that some of the proposals from management went to the media before they even reached the Players Association. Uh, That doesn't indicate an interest in reaching agreement. But it is not an, a low standard. Uh, it is not something that I think an arbitrator 
would easily reach. Uh, you also have to consider that these arbitrators are hired by both parties. They can be dismissed at the discretion of a single party. Now, they're not going to go out on a limb and make a purely political ruling like a federal judge might do who is a lifetime appointment. Uh, they are going to base all of their decisions on the plain language of the contract and the conduct of the parties. And so because of that, uh, and because even though uh, they have multiple clients, they just they, do, they don't just work for Major League Baseball as an arbitrator. Uh, it is a pretty premier job, and they don't want to be fired. Uh, if you look back at a lot of the historical cases over the years, um, the party that loses frequently fires the arbitrator, um, and that is in the high-profile cases. Here, I think... Um, the arbitrator would would have enough information um, to resolve the case without going out on a limb and determining that one party or the other bargained in bad faith. I think arbitrators are pretty good at restricting what uh, is before them and what they have to actually rule on. And they may not have to reach the question of bad faith in order to resolve the question of best efforts to play as many games as possible. I, I want to uh, zoom out just a, a bit. I, I, I would be interested in hearing, like this is a problem that I deal with sometimes is people who aren't like in the, in the weeds on this, you know, people who aren't following the day to day, just your average baseball fan is basically like, Hey, what the hell happened? Like, how did they, how did this get so screwed up? And and I'm curious when you get asked that just sort of baseline question, how do you explain it? How did this get botched so badly? So I think part of that is just the presumption that it got botched. And mm -hmm. having been in the process of collective bargaining now for, for a little over uh, 20 years, my experience is that there's always conflict in the process. Even the most collaborative parties do have conflict when they're negotiating. Frequently, the, the negotiating rooms will have the parties yelling at each other, um, cursing at each other. Uh, we refer to it as robust debate. Uh, it's just the, the common practice. But normally, that's all happening behind closed doors. There's not hundreds of reporters calling both parties every day to say, is there an update? Did you reach a deal? Um, it's just not done. And the parties frequently know that their best interest is to keep it behind closed doors. Now, they may use public leverage periodically on issues uh, and in order to push the other party to reach agreement. But usually that's kind of something that's, that's reserved for specific instances and specific needs. Here, I think, specifically management went to the media with everything, even as I said, before it went to the Players Association. And that really, I think, undermined the process. Uh, at one point in particular, I think I tweeted, today, you know, I, I finally feel pessimistic about them reaching a, a voluntary agreement. And that was because in one of the athletics pieces, I think it was uh, Ken Rosenthal um, and Evan Drellish put out 
a, a quote from a management attorney for Major League Baseball who basically said, we recognize the March agreement doesn't require the players to accept anything less than pro rata pay. And when that was in the article, I saw for the first time the players releasing something publicly because that was something that was a, a, a letter from one attorney uh, in the Major League Baseball to a, an attorney in the Players Association, and it had not been previously released. And obviously, Major League Baseball wasn't going to release it because it undermined their whole smoking gun argument uh, and, and the idea that the parties actually intended to renegotiate pay. So I, I think when that happened, I thought, wow, the parties are really at a place where they're not talking to each other. They're just trying to embarrass each other publicly. And so I was concerned that they weren't going to reach a voluntary agreement. I think that the day-to-day check-ins, the day-to-day leaks, and the day-to-day quotes from people who were not at the table, such as individual owners and individual agents who aren't even members of the Players Association, that all hurt the process. And I, I would hope that the parties learn from that and in the 2021 and 2022 negotiations, uh, they decide to create a no pl- publicity agreement as part of the ground rules uh, so that, you know, in, unless they decide to uh, amend that, that they're, they're only going to give basically a canned quote that they're working towards voluntary agreement, that the Players Association members and the ownership group can separately ratify and they're hopeful to reach an agreement soon. And that way, they don't have this news cycle daily saying, oh, things are going backwards or, you know, the parties are angry at each other. That really doesn't help the process. And it requires then the the negotiators to spend a good deal of their time dealing with that media issue as opposed to dealing with each other to reach agreement. You know, following along with your insights on on Twitter, I think a big part of, you know, some of what you talked about here is how this has been covered from a media perspective. And I guess I'm wondering if you were to counsel a reporter, let's say it's someone who's never had to deal with this before, and they can't, they come to you and they're like, hey, what are some best practices as far as covering an issue like this? What would you, di- what would you tell them? How would you counsel that person? Well, I think one of the key things is not to place blame throughout the process. And I know a lot of reporters like to write these articles that say they're both wrong. Um, and it's, it's hard to say right and wrong when you don't know all the details of the, the party's proposals, much less the underlying legal structure that affects bargaining. So, you know, when there were, was discussion about, uh, specifically in this case, whether or not pro rata pay was something to be negotiated in the future or or was fixed based on the March agreement, I think that if they had a copy of that agreement itself, I think it would be good to share that with labor lawyers, experienced labor lawyers, so that they could review it and, and give some kind of analysis of it, rather than just accepting their sources' arguments about what it meant. 
I, I know that they have strong relationships with sources, um, but in this case, a lot of the sources were providing propaganda as opposed to real legal opinions. Um, the other thing is that this is an uncomfortable process if you're not used to it. It's not people just sitting in a room and making a deal. Uh, there's a lot of pressure brought to bear. Uh, there are a lot of arguments, some of which are strong arguments and some of which are purely positional arguments. And you can't just go ahead and print those things without understanding the greater context because, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, these negotiations always have ups and downs. Uh, one of our one of our chief negotiators in the past has given a, a kind of a welcome speech to our negotiating team before, and he said, "You guys are now on the roller coaster. There are going to be up days and down days. There are going to be days we're coming around the corner really fast, and we have to come back with something quickly, and it's not going to be comfortable." But for reporters who want a daily game story, there's no game story for this. Uh, there are those ups and downs. There are those times when you feel your uh, stomach in your throat. And, you know, that's not the end of the bargaining. That's just the end of the day. And it keeps going. It's kind of like writing a game story in the middle of the second inning. It's not over. And there's no reason to, to publish that story yet. You know, it's funny. There are game stories written in the second inning, right, Andy? <laughs> I I do all my best work in the fifth. Uh, Eugene, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate your insight, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch again as these uh, two sides start working on that CBA um, soonish. So, thank you. My pleasure, and uh, I'm definitely available if you guys have further questions. So thanks for listening to Beyond the Scrum. We will, well, maybe we'll try and be positive next week, but who can say? I mean, <laughs> the trend lines, much like America, the trend lines for this podcast are not optimistic, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, you can go to theathletic.com slash scrum and get a 40% discount on your subscription. You should subscribe to The Athletic. It's a good site. There's good stories on there, and you'll probably like it. All right, have a good day.